Let me invite you to stand and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and I'll read to you verses 16 through 18 as we think about together how we relate to God in the midst of trials and temptations that we face, which is the larger context there of James chapter 1. And we learn much from James here how to navigate life. And let me draw your attention to verses 16 through 18 of James chapter 1 as I read. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would make clear to us the meaning of this passage, that we as your people might be encouraged and deeply hopeful as we unwrap the good gifts that you provide. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, the comedian Jimmy Kimmel started a routine where he encouraged parents to give bad gifts to their kids and then to film them receiving the gifts and to show, sort of create a video montage and showcase the bad responses that these kids gave to the bad gifts. And so there's a video of a boy receiving a Hello Kitty sweater, and the, the kid, the, the boy goes absolutely berserk, you know, getting this, this gift. There's another one where the parents give one child an onion and the other child a battery, and they film it, and of course kids are crying, and the mom's asking if the kid has smelled the onion. And then there's another one, they... The parents gave uh, one kid a roll of paper towels and the other kid a half-empty bottle of V8 juice. And so the kids are crying, receiving these gifts, and the mom says, uh, pulls off a paper towel and, and wipes the kid's tears with it and says, see, we're already using uh, your, your gift. And... It is, it is a funny prank, isn't it? It's sort of an indictment on the materialism of kids, uh, for sure. But it's also an indictment of bad parenting, isn't it? Bad parenting, that parents would exploit their kids this way, that parents would broadcast some of their kids' worst responses for all the world to see forever on the internet. This is an indictment of bad parenting. Good parents don't give bad gifts, so we would say. And it's an indictment of this, this prank is something you don't want to do, so don't get any ideas, parents, because really it's a betrayal of trust. It's a betrayal of trust. We want our parents, we want our Heavenly Father to give us good gifts. 
to give us good gifts. And sometimes we don't recognize these gifts as good, do we? And that's part of the problem. As we're trying to navigate life, we read in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. No, I don't want that gift. And you probably don't either. We don't want the gift of trials, be it the various trials there in verse 2 or the temptations that we looked at in verse 13 last week. We don't want those gifts, but the gifts are actually good. And the gifts are good not because we recognize them as such, but because they come from a generous God who gives us these gifts that they might have their intended spiritual effect on our life. That's James chapter 1, verse 3. Why would we count it all joy when we encounter hard things in our life? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the value of that steadfastness is greater than living a comfortable life. Verse 4, this steadfastness makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it carries out for us a spiritual work in maturing us that is worth more than that which we lose or the pain that we encounter in a trial. And so we rejoice at the gifts that God gives us, but James has to enlighten us a little bit here and I'll show you that in our next few moments together. He enlightens us, helping us to understand the good gifts that God gives to us and helping us understand how to navigate, unwrapping these gifts that maybe we didn't ask for or want. So the first thing here in verse 16 is to not be deceived. Now, your Bible, probably like mine, has a paragraph break there in verse 16. And the paragraph breaks don't appear in the original. And I bring that up to say, do not be deceived really goes with what proceeds, with what proceeds in the discussion about temptation, but it also goes with what follows. And so do not be deceived, in, in other words, about the nature of temptation, but don't be deceived either about the nature of God and his generosity to us. So the first point I want to make, don't be deceived. God gives good gifts. And to be deceived here is, we understand that, it's not to, to not see clearly. To not see the truth of the situation is to be deceived. But this word deceived in the original carries with it this idea that relates back to chapter 1, verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Deception can also mean wandering and unstable. So don't be deceived connects with what goes before in the discussion about temptation. But it also has to do with our view of the gifts that God gives to us. And we get a statement about those gifts next in the first part of verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So good gifts, their origin, their source is from above. And it's every good and perfect gift. 
And perfect here connotes not morally exemplary or perfection in terms of we might say, oh, I found the perfect gift. But what it means is there's a purpose, a teleos, that's the Greek word for purpose and end goal. Every gift is perfect in the sense that God gives it with a purpose to grow and mature us. That takes us back to verse 4, perfect and mature perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it speaks to the fact that we lack something and the way we get what we lack spiritually is that a good God gives us gifts. And sometimes those gifts are the things we don't want to unwrap. Sometimes they're hard and difficult things, but they have value in terms of what they accomplish for us spiritually as we grow in humility, as we grow in our trust of God. And so verse 17, every good gift, every perfect gift, I didn't do it, you didn't do it, that comes from God. I like to say that if you have anything in your life that is good, that is right, you didn't do it. God gave that to you. Either he gave it to you directly or he gave it to you in terms of the ability to accomplish something good. And so James helps us navigate these gifts by first understanding the very nature of God. He's a generous God who gives good gifts to his followers. So don't be deceived. God gives good gifts. And what makes a good gift is not you and me saying it's a good gift. Because we want, what do we want? We want clear skies, unlimited visibility every day. And God will, at times, put us in situations where there are dark clouds. But he intends our ultimate and spiritual good, even from the hard things in our life. So what makes a good gift is not what we say. But it's the spiritual good, the spiritual lessons God is teaching us as he brings us along in maturity, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And you can think about our salvation this way. In terms of our salvation, if you're a Christian, was brought about by the torture and suffering of a Savior, something good coming from a difficult gift accomplishes our salvation. And so, God gives good gifts. He is generous. Navigate your life by acknowledging that God gives good gifts, that everything right, and I know we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be more than a day for a Christian. It should be absolutely our posture in terms of the gratitude with which we receive life every day, that life's a gift. And if you have anything good, if you have anything right in your life, God did that. So the first point here from verse 16 and the first part of verse 17, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about the good gifts that God gives. They have a spiritual purpose. They come from a God who is generous. They come from a God who intends our spiritual good. 
And the second point here, it's in the second half of verse 17. Don't be deceived. God is unchanging. You see, the ability to receive the good gift, the ability to receive gifts that are sometimes difficult but have a good spiritual outcome, the ability to receive these as a gift is not something we do in our own strength. It comes from a God who is unchanging. Look at the second half of verse 17 here. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Your theology is important. What you think about God is important for how you live life. And what we're told here is that God is, as theologians call it, God is immutable. He is unchanging. And the good and the perfect gift, remember perfect there, given for a purpose, to mature us spiritually, these gifts come from the Father of lights, a reference here to creation. He is powerful enough to say, let there be light, and what happens? There is light. So he is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so he is the Heavenly Father, who put the sun in its place, the stars in their courses above. He put the moon in its place. He is the father of lights. <coughs> Excuse me. Something got me hoarse today. So he is the father of lights. He is immutable. He is unchanging. So the hope for us comes in receiving these gifts that are sometimes difficult. And in a world, in a culture that's always changing, our hope comes from the fact that God is unchanging. There is no shadow with him. In other words, 1 John 1, 5, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. <clears throat> he is not like a cruel parent filming our poor reaction to a gift we didn't ask or ask for or want. He is not like that. He is an unchanging God whose promises still stand, and it is his unchanging nature, his immutability, his promise-keeping that bolsters and strengthens us to navigate a topsy-turvy world. Now, you know, if you've heard my sermons before, usually you don't try this at home. But this is one you can try at home. But if you're older, I'm not responsible for your injuries. <laughs> but if you're younger, you can have at it. And what it is, is have you ever played that kind of carnival game or a field day game or fall festival game where it's a relay race. So you have your team behind you and what you do, they're lined up behind you and you're going to race to a line that's out there and then you're going to come back. Only they give you a bat. They give you a bat. And what you do, you put the bat on the ground and then you put your forehead or in my case, five or six head and I see some, some other ones who have five heads out there. You put your forehead on that bat, and you make ten circles around the bat while your forehead is on there. So you're looking down, 
And then what happens? You drop the bat and you run to the line. Only when you go to do that, the world's doing this, isn't it? And typically, if you've ever watched this or participated, if the shortest distance between two points is a line, a straight line, you want to run a straight line, people are doing anything but that. In fact, usually the moment they drop the bat, they take off in whatever direction they were making their circle in. And in a topsy-turvy world that might throw you off course or off balance, the stability we need is not in managing our calendar well. The stability we need is not in controlling other people. Good luck with that. The stability we need comes from a God who never changes, who never changes. And we can depend on Him. And so we must acknowledge and trust, even in the difficult moments we face, that God is unchanging in his loving stance and mercy towards his followers. And that gives us the confidence we need. That gives us the ability to navigate such a topsy-turvy world. Last week, Last week we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And let me remind you of those words we sung together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. And so that's a reference to this passage here in James. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been thou forever will be. The confidence we need to trust God, to see his faithfulness come about in our life, the challenge is to trust, and we trust in a God who never changes. And so don't be deceived. God gives good gifts. Don't be deceived about the nature of what happens to us. God gives good gifts. Don't be deceived about the very nature of God. This helps us with our theology to say that God is unchanging. And don't be deceived. And the next point here made in verse 18, don't be deceived. It is God who brings forth the new birth. Look at this in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. There is that debate among theologians between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In other words, if God is sovereign and he's powerful, what role is there in human responsibility? And what we know or can understand is that that debate is settled in understanding that God is indeed sovereign and that human beings are really responsible. And that's as far as we go. But we understand this from verse 18, that it is only by God's will that he enables people to respond to the gospel. You and I only responded to the truth of the gospel because God made it clear to us. That's the point Jesus makes in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, the good news is is that God is unchanging, and the good news is that God is powerful enough 
to make the blind see. He is powerful enough to break through prideful and arrogant hearts like ours to see the reality that we cannot save ourselves, that it's only through Christ that hope is found. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. If verse 17 emphasizes a certain kind of theology, verse 18, the first part there, fills in the gaps to say God is powerful enough to help you, to provide for you in the midst of unwrapping gifts that we might not call good at first glance. In other words, nothing can stop the advance of God's will. Nothing can stop the advance of his word of truth, which is to say the message of the gospel. You see, the message of the gospel is for Christians and non-Christians alike. The, this word of truth, we need that to bring us to the point of conversion, which we express with faith and repentance. But we need that same word of truth to guide us and lead us and help us on the other side of the cross after we've responded, after we have converted to Christ. Of his own will, he brought us forth is a statement that nothing can stop the advance of God's power or the advance of the life-giving message of the gospel. Some of us are going to spend time with relatives we love who don't share our faith, who don't share our belief, and sometimes that can be an awkward time. But you can know what James is telling us here is that God has to move for them to see perhaps what we've seen. For them to believe what we believe, God must first move in their heart by the power of his Holy Spirit and by the word of truth. So you can pray for your relatives. You can bring them to the Lord. You can stop maybe being frustrated and you can stop thinking it's up to you to explain perfectly the gospel message and instead you can trust in a God who can powerfully work when he desires. So, so far, what you've seen, don't be deceived. God gives good gifts. Don't be deceived. God is unchanging. Don't be deceived. God brings forth the new birth. And before I get to the final point, notice here, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth is meant to contrast with verse 15. You see, verse 15 paints a picture of death being brought forth. Verse 18, life, spiritual life being brought forth. Verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's the answer to that? God bringing us forth, verse 18, by his own will, by the word of truth. And so the last point here, verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of, of his creatures. In other words, what's the purpose of God's will bringing us forth in this different sequence than verse 15, a contrasting sequence that brings life, life eternal? What is the purpose for that? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And that word first fruits carries a lot of Old Testament 
wait there. It's a reference to Exodus 34 and Leviticus 23. In both those passages, you have the explanation of the first fruits. And being non-agrarian people, for the most part, this might be hard for us to understand. But what Israel did, and this is laid out for us in Leviticus 23, 9 through 11, what they did is they harvested grain or wheat. So you might think you have a sickle and you, you hit that wheat and you gather it up and you gather it up into bundles or sheaves and then you would take that to the priest and he would offer that to the Lord understanding that this is the first fruits, that this is representative of God providing the harvest. So people would bring the first fruits to the priest and they would offer it to God as evidence that the harvest is plentiful, that God indeed provided it, and that he has blessed through this process. And that's what you are. We are, in Christ, the first fruits, the best part of the har harvest offered to God for his will, for his glory, for the purposes that he has for us. And so when we ask, what is a Christian, we can say, in Christ, we are first fruits. By virtue of believing the gospel, we have become these first fruits. And that's vitally important in a world that is so confused over identity, so confused over purpose. And I read a book recently that really relates to Bernie Texas. Does it count if you listen to the book? Does that count as reading? Uh, okay, the, the congregation is split over this. <laughs> I listened to the book. And the book is titled, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. That's quite a title, isn't it? Never Enough. When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. And it's written by a reporter, Jennifer Wallace, who researched sort of high-achieving communities and that, that are like Bernie, Texas. Here we go, prophetic. Like Bernie, Texas. Bernie, Texas had, you know, a great place to raise a family, but by the way, a toxic culture of achievement. What do I mean by that? I mean, you have kids jumping through all the hoops, young people jumping through all the hoops, and yet they are unhappy, anxious, worried, depressed in higher numbers than ever uh, recorded. And then you have adults who are quite unhappy too, and they envy and they're coveting what other people have, and they are conducting themselves in a way that shows it's this great competition. And that's the achievement culture that can become toxic. Uh, and so this reporter, and I had to suspend my rule, so I have a rule that I won't read books written by journalists. You, you can adopt that rule too. The reason I have that rule is they are long on description of the problem, and they are short on solution. They're short on solution. And, and I'm going to read to you a quote from the book. And she really reaches for something that you can't have without Christianity. 
And I think it's a good reach. It's a commendable reach. But you really, as a parent, as an adult, have to bring the rest of the story in to understand how we would combat a toxic achievement or performance-related culture. And to understand, you know, when I say performance-related, I think you get that, that the love is conditional unless the performance is up. It's kind of like my dog. I tell my dog she's bad, not for what she does, but for who she is. So she, and she smiles and wags her tail all the same. But a performance culture places our perform. That's just a little joke she and I have. And we get along great, and I love my dog. Um, but a performance culture removes our significance in who we are and places it in what we do. And it has an anti-gospel direction to it. Because, you know, the gospel is the ultimate answer to a toxic performance culture because uh, uh, the gospel communicates to us that our worth, that our value is because of what someone else did on our behalf. Not what we do, but what Christ did on our behalf. And anyway, back to this book, Never Enough, when achievement culture becomes toxic like it has in Bernie, Texas, and what we can do about it. Uh, The author writes, we learn we matter simply because we are. So the answer to sort of this toxic performance culture, hey, we need to get out there, we need to do better, do more, you know, all this, you know, parents who have the goal of uh, get a good education, get a good, uh, go to a good college, get a good job. If if that's the highest goals for your kids, and, and I'm all about, Kids getting good jobs and getting off the payroll. (laughs) But that's not the highest goal in child rearing. We need those spiritual goals. So how do we combat this toxic performance culture? We learn we matter, the author writes, simply because we are. Mattering is a pathway back to our inerrant worth. It tells us we are enough. And I love that quotation But the only thing is, it's missing the cross, isn't it? How do you know someone has inherent worth except that they are created by God? How do we know someone has inherent worth? You can't think that you have inherent worth if you believe that uh, lightning hit a mud puddle and out you crawled. You don't have inherent worth if you believe that. You have inherent worth because you know a God created you, made you in his image, and gave you the purpose of reflecting that image and transcribing his character on the created order. To be made in his image, to reflect that image, is to have worth. And God not only created us, he redeemed us as well, and then he gives good gifts to us to shape and form us spiritually. Parents of depressed down teens, parents of defeated teens, communicate to them about the inerrant worth they have before God, before God. And if you're caught up in this performance culture, if you're kind of in middle life, you need to know 
that your worth comes from a God who communicates our worth to us because the price that's paid is at the cross. And that's where our worth comes from. If you're confused about your identity, who you are, your purpose in life, God conveys that to us. You see, to know inerrant worth, we will not know it through some act of self-discovery. You won't know inerrant worth by following your heart. You will only know it through the heart of the gospel, which communicates our worth once and for all. If you're older, this applies to you as well, because we do get in sort of that toxic performance culture, not based on what we are doing, but based on what we can't do anymore. Because as we get older, we can't do what we once did. And that toxic performance culture whispers to us that we don't have worth anymore because we can't do what we used to do. Ah, but instead, the gospel breaks through. And God reminds us, who are you? You are a kind of first fruits, verse 18 tells us. Oh, that's good news. That's the good news of the gospel is the inerrant worth we have apart from our performance, but due to the performance of Jesus Christ, who not only lived the perfect life, went to the cross, rose again in power, seated at the right hand of God because he loves us, interceding, praying for, and helping us. So James sets us straight, not only on the nature of God, theology, because some people would say that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Have you ever heard that quote? I think it was A.W. Tozer who said that. I got news for you. Maybe the most important thing about you is not what you think about God, but what God thinks about you. You are the first fruits. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask and thank you for your magnificent grace and love and mercy in our life. We thank you we have value because of what happened at the cross. And we pray that you would help us to know that we matter, even in the midst of receiving gifts that maybe we don't ask for in these trials of various kinds that we experience and go through. We pray together as your people that we would trust all the more that difficult times would be times that we simply trust you more and we know that you are unchanging, immutable, and a promise keeper. Encourage us as your people to have hope in this hopeless world and we pray we might know the joy of Christmas, even now in this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.